really, I suppose, all sickness is what we would call original sin. Theologically and biblically speaking, there are two classifications of sin, what we would call original sin and what we would call personal sin. Original sin would be the root. Personal sin would be the fruit. Original sin, what does that mean? Well, it means that we have inherited from Adam a sin nature. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl is continuing his sermon in James chapter 5, titled, Does Prayer and Oil Heal?, where he is explaining the display of faith as it relates to prayer. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues his sermon in James chapter 5, verse 14. So when we are cheerful, we are to sing, and our singing should be intelligent. Our singing should be from the heart. Third, our singing should be based on the Word of God. It should be based on the Word of God. It needs to be based on Scripture. Paul told the church at Coloss that with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, they are to make melody. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 5.19. Listen to this verse. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You see those two words I have underlined on the slide, making melody? That's the verbal form of the Greek word for psalm. And so literally it reads singing and psalming in your heart. In other words, when you are singing, you are singing truth as the Jews had the Psalms as their hymn book. They still use it as their hymn book. The five books of Psalms contained in that one big book we call the Psalms. They use it to sing hymns to the Lord. So when we worship God, if a song is not biblical, then it's really not acceptable to the Lord. That's why Matt is very careful to select the hymns that he chooses to make sure they are sound. And there have been some hymns, too, that have been produced by organizations like Hillsong and Bethel and stuff, but they've gone south. You've got all these pastors who are living immorally, not to mention the weird theology that is way off the charge of a group like Bethel and Hillsong comes together with them. Why would we want to sing any of their songs and use our CCLI license to, to help fund them? I don't want to. So we don't. So in chapter 1, he warned us about not falling into sin when we are down. But here he is warning us not to fall into sin when we are up. That we don't celebrate like the world celebrates. That we sing when we are cheerful. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Belt it out. Sure, we need to be sensitive to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. But it doesn't mean we can't sing and enjoy the Lord just because we're not in the midst of a thick trial. All right, let's keep moving. We are to pray when we are overwhelmed. We are to sing when we are overjoyed. Third, we are to seek healing when we are overcome. And this is where we will spend the focus of our time this morning. We are to seek healing when we are overcome. Look now, if you will, at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
Now, before we go through these next few verses, I think it would be important for us to have a theology of sickness from the rest of the Bible so we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's think for just a moment about the causes of sickness as they are underscored in Scripture. First and foremost, the cause of really, I suppose, all sickness is what we would call original sin. Theologically and biblically speaking, there are two classifications of sin, what we would call original sin and what we would call personal sin. Original sin would be the root, personal sin would be the fruit. Original sin, what does that mean? Well, it means that we have inherited from Adam a sin nature. But we can't dump on Adam like, well, you know, he gave me this problem. Actually, I got my problem from Richard John Brogy. He got it from Charles Brogy. He got it from Frank Brogy. And all of us go back to our original parents. And the Bible teaches the solidarity of the human race, that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so Paul writes in Romans 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. We sinned in and with Adam. When Adam chose to sin, we were in his loins, just like Jacob was in the loins of Abraham and he tithed and so forth. The solidarity of the human race. Now, had Adam not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and had simply eaten from the tree of life, he would have never died. There would have been zero sickness in the whole universe. Now, this is important because we have so-called Christian apologists like Tim Keller, who affirms theistic evolution and now is very fluffy and soft on what God says about homosexual sin and same-sex attraction. He said, well, it's no big deal. You can be a good Christian and believe in theistic evolution. You cannot because you're denying the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. And you're putting death and disease for centuries, millions, possibly billions of years, depending on the evolutionists, before sin entered into the world. But there was no death until sin entered into the world. When sin entered into the world, thus came sickness and all the problems. So there is original sin, but there's also personal sin that brings sickness. If you've ever heard a pastor rightly prepare his people for the Lord's Supper, about drinking judgment onto yourself. It has nothing to do with the lost man as it is mischaracterized. It has everything to do with the saved man, someone who comes to the Lord's table and participates in an unworthy fashion because there is unconfessed, unrepented sin in the heart. And so they're taking the very elements that say that I've been bought with a price, that I am not my own, I am to live a holy life, and in essence they mock it with unconfessed sin, and they invite the discipline of God. Many examples in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. Take David and Bathsheba for a moment. Second Samuel 11, most of you know it. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed. That resulted not just in his death, but the death of several other men. And then he refused to acknowledge his sin for some time. Finally, the prophet Nathan comes. It's been approximately one year before David comes clean with God. 
And in his journal in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, two Psalms that relate to his sin with Bathsheba, he describes what life was like for him. Listen to these words from Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained as with the fever heat of summer. That's the effect of guilt. Look, when your heart is filled with joy, when it's clear with the Lord, there's a certain vitality and strength. But when you're under the guilt of sin, it's like someone sucks all the power out of you. Another example, which I just mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11.30. Paul speaks of personal sin. And he said, for this reason, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. Some of you died prematurely, sooner than God would have had you to have died because of unconfessed, unrepented sin. Or think of this verse, 1 John 5, verse 16. He also speaks of premature physical death. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. So John, of course, is not speaking of spiritual death. He's speaking here of bodily death. There are some Christians who die early because of sin in their life. So first, there is sickness that is caused by sin. Secondly, there is sickness that is caused by Satan. You might want to jot down a few verses. If you were here last time, we looked at the example of Job who in his patience persevered. But you will remember in Job 2 and verse 7, we read, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Another example of sickness caused by Satan is recorded by Dr. Luke in Luke 13 and verse 11. It's recorded, And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. There was a demonic influence that brought an infirmity on her so that a few verses later, Jesus will say, Satan has bound her for 18 long years. A similar statement is found in Acts 10 and verse 38. Jot down that verse, Acts 10, 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now, we don't see this very often in our country because we don't share yet in open Satanism, though it is beginning to grow. Even our chaplaincy in the military have to provide chaplains now for the Wiccans, the Satan worshipers. But if you go to a place like Haiti, one of the reasons I believe it's the single poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere is because it's covered over with voodoo and Satan worship. And there's all kinds of physical infirmities that pastors have to deal with because of literal demon possession. I had a friend who we went to seminary together at Dallas Seminary, and he came there from Haiti. And over lunch, he shared with me on one occasion many of the challenges that they face because of the worship of Satan. So certainly, there is some sickness that can be traced to personal sin, and there is certainly some sickness that be, can be traced directly to the devil. I don't think that should be your first thought, did Satan cause this, unless you have openly, actively, by choice, 
opened yourself up to the evil one. But in addition, there's other reasons for some sickness. Some sickness is for the glory of God. Do you remember the blind man that Jesus healed, a man who had been blind from birth? And his disciples asked him in John chapter 9 and verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he should be born blind? A popular teaching in Christ's day was that all sin, all sickness was related to some kind of personal sin, either your parents or your own. And so today, some people think that way. Someone's under a trial, and we think, well, I wonder what he's up to. What's going on in his life? And some Christians think that way because they're not well taught. They obviously have not read much of Scripture. Think of what God himself says to Moses in the Torah in Exodus 4.11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God took responsibility for those things. And so in response to the disciples' question, Jesus said this, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works, not work, but the works, plural, of God might be displayed in him. Christ was going to heal him physically to authenticate, A, that he was the Messiah, but B, he was going to heal him spiritually in deference to the Pharisees, of course, who suffered from spiritual blindness. So God would somehow glorify himself through this man. But sometimes God allows sickness to accomplish a special purpose in our own life, not simply to glorify him, but to give us an increased understanding of suffering that someone we love or care to or called to disciple our knowing. And God often does this with older, more mature Christians. Remember, he'll never give you anything that you're not able to bear. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we have some great insight. Listen to these words that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. Blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, when you've gone through a particular trial of some sort, be it a physical infirmity or whatever it might be, you're able to relate on a different level because you've walked in that person's shoes. So sometimes God uses sickness to increase our understanding and our sensitivity and our compassion and our ministry to other people so that the God of all comfort who comforted us can comfort someone else through us. Sometimes God does not simply want to increase our understanding. Sometimes God wants to increase the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. Jot down this verse, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. The Apostle Paul testifies, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, as to precisely what this thorn in the flesh was, we do not know. Some think maybe it was his mother-in-law. I think that's a little hard for me to believe since we know the Apostle Paul was single his entire life. But if I were to make an educated guess, I would probably say it was his eyesight. 
uh, we read in Galatians 4 and verse 15. He says, For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Paul, on his first missionary journey, went through the Galatian region, and it was a region that history records was known for malaria. And malaria, of course, is related to eye problems. And so in the same book, he writes towards the end, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. And it would certainly fit the chronology when Paul wrote Galatians and then when he writes 2 Corinthians. We're told in the next verse in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, concerning this, this thorn in the flesh, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Three times, Lord Jesus, heal me. And three times, God said no. In fact, in verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You say, well, was Paul out of fellowship with God? Was he living in sin? Did he lack in faith? No, none of the above. It was a thorn in the flesh because power is perfected in weakness. It can make us more dependent on the living God. So Paul will respond, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Paul is telling us that in his weakness, he learned to depend more and more, not just the thorn in the flesh, but the people who insulted him, who followed him, who dogged his trail, who persecuted him. He knew through it all, he would learn to depend more even on God's power. And Job really makes a similar statement in Job 23.10. He says, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. God will use the trial to remove the dross and to empower our lives more fully. And so Job silenced the mouth of the devil. He silenced the mouths of his uh, friends and that he showed he had a pure and true love for God by the way he responded and depended on God. Now, there are some very special people listening to me today who have shut the devil's mouth who have closed the lips of an unbelieving world in the midst of your suffering. But what is James talking about? Now, that's a broad the theology of suffering, but let's bring it down to our passage. Pay attention. You're going to need this. I promise you. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, several truths I want to underscore. First, the problem stated. The problem stated. James simply asks, is any among you sick? And the word here for sick found twice in verses 14 and 15, asthenao. It means to be ill, and it can be used both physically and spiritually in both realms in the New Testament. It's describing someone who's really like disabled, who's without strength. In other words, he's not talking about someone with an ingrown toenail or a toothache. He's talking about someone with a serious, serious problem. In addition to the problem stated, there's the procedure given, the procedure given. Let's read further into verse 14. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. Now notice first who initiates this prayer. 
The one who is sick calls for the elders of the church. And I find that pattern interesting because it's so foreign to what we see happening in our day. Today we have these faith healers who go around the country and they open up these auditoriums and they have these healing services. But that's not, this is not the biblical basis for a healing service. Now look, when people are sick, nobody really wants to be sick. And if, if you've got some like major problem, I mean, nobody wants that. But these bodies are getting older. And you may be 25 and you don't feel like you've got a care in the world, but when you're 65, you may need some tune-ups here and there. And, you know, and things are just problemsome. But sometimes a 30-year-old can be plagued with a serious illness like MS or any number of things. No one wants to be sick. When I was in college and a relatively new believer, there was a Roman Catholic priest who I ended up meeting. And I went and I asked him the diagnostic questions. And no, he wasn't saved. But he there for the Roman Catholic Church would fill the Worcester Memorial Auditoriums and other auditoriums across New England, pack them with thousands of people because he was offering healing. And there were some healings that took place. Now, that's another sermon in itself. But no one wants to be sick. But understand, this is not some self-appointed faith healer who travels cities typically to bilk people of their monies. No, this is the individual who is sick going to the elders of the church. You say, does not everyone want to be healed? The person who is sick, I mean, doesn't everybody want to be healed? Well, not necessarily, and we need to just step back for a moment. Understand there are sick people who don't want to be healed. How do you know? Well, Jesus said so. He asked the question at the man at the pool of Bethesda. When we go to Israel, we go to the pool of Bethesda. It's a class A spot. Like, it happened right here. And he asked the question, do you wish to get well? Do you will to get well? Do you want to get well? That was no insincere question. No insincerity ever came from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Everything he said was the truth. And he knew that not everyone wanted to get well, that some people like to keep an illness. Sometimes it's an excuse to be lazy, to get others to do the work for you. It's simply an excuse for some, sadly, to remain irresponsible. Some people like the sympathy that the sickness generates. And sadly, some people cannot be healed because they cherish the sin that has created the sickness. And that, as we're going to see in just a moment, is what James is focusing on. People who cherish sin that causes the illness. Then there are those people who have prayed over and over and over again, and they've just reached a point in their life and their body is worn out. And rightly, they don't want to be healed in this life. They want to be healed for the next. And I've asked people, says, Pastor, will you just pray that the Lord would take me home? I'm ready to go home. Is any among you sick? Then let him call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. And let me just say, as an aside, if you are sick and want prayer in the hospital, there is no way either a pastor or a church member will come to pray for you unless they know you are sick. 
And so we get complaints from time to time. No one came to me in the hospital. Well, no one knew you were in the hospital. And really, they're telling on themselves. They're telling that they have a casual, disconnected relationship to the local assembly. They may show up here for worship and slide out. They really don't know anyone. They don't really get engaged in people's lives. And they are in violation of Hebrews 3 and Hebrews chapter 10. And it has nothing to do, by the way, with the size of the church. I've learned it has very little to do with whether a church is large or a church is small. Now, when I first came here, there were certain expectations of me to go and pray with people in the hospital. And I'd love to pray with everyone in the hospital. But that's not truly the principal job description of a pastor. Now, every Christian is called to show mercy. And I wish I could be at every hospital bed, but I cannot. And if I were to do that, and I meet pastors whose congregations are primarily older people, nothing wrong with older people. This whole movement that we just want the young people is an unbalanced, unbiblical way in which to do church because there's an assumption in the New Testament that older men, older women are teaching the next generation, that they are valued people. But if your whole congregation is old people, typically there's a sickness there because the leadership are not reaching the next generation of people. And if a pastor spends all his time on that, something's going to suffer. His preparation to feed the people from the Word of God, to share the gospel with the lost, and to baptize both of those two functions in prayer will somehow be diminished. But look, while I may not be able to pray for you at a hospital bed, if I know of it, I can go into my prayer closet and bring you before the Lord God. You say, Pastor, I've been in the hospital and I've been sick and you weren't there. You're right. And I wish I could be there for everyone. But you know, there are people in this fellowship who have the gift of mercy. There are deacons who serve in that way. There are people who are engaged in adult Bible fellowships who know you are sick and they come and they minister to you. Look, if I show up at your hospital bed, you probably wish I hadn't come because you are so sick. That's why I'm there. Are you sick? Call for the elders of the church. Now, please notice the elders. What does the term elder mean? Unlike in the Old Testament, where it can refer to a spiritual leader, the word elder is also used in the Hebrew Bible to describe an older person. In the New Testament, it's used principally of the office. And the word elder, overseer, bishop, pastor is used interchangeably to describe the same person. In other words, there's not a hierarchy in some denominations where I'm a pastor and over here there's this bishop, this super pastor who moves pastors around. Not found anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, in the same verse sometimes, you will see the term overseer or elder interchanged with the word bishop or pastor. Acts 20, Titus 1 are good examples. Look, in the New Testament, every church was autonomous. The only authority above the local church in the first century were the apostles. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as Pastor Carl concludes his series, Does Prayer and Oil Heal? 
If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 014. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Also, remember that you can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.